Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Marty Atias is going to be talking about gain staging for us. And uh, we'll all get together and talk a little bit about it as we put this together. Um, and so if you've got questions about gain staging, if you know don't know what gain staging is, uh, all of those things are perfect uh, questions to uh, to put in there, and we'll answer your questions. It's a very important, fundamental understanding of sound that uh, that we we want to cover. And so, so if you've got questions about it, go ahead, go search, go do some searches, think about some questions, get them in there before the second hour. Uh, if you have questions in the first hour, it can be pretty much anything around digital media production. Go ahead and throw those questions in. This show is driven uh, by your questions. <laughs> so it gets real short if you don't ask them. So uh, so definitely throw those questions into Makana um, and uh, and we'll, uh, we'll get to them as fast as we can. Make sure to vote on those questions so we know which ones to answer first. Go ahead, Bill. What do we have? Our first one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul says, what is a near field monitor like the Genelec, which is insanely expensive? What would you use it for? And will it work with an audio mixer? Uh, go ahead, Marty. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, Near-field monitors are, look like small bookshelf speakers, and, and they are built and designed to develop the sound field close to them, as opposed to a home bookshelf speaker where you will be sitting anywhere from 8 to 12 feet from the speaker. Uh, those speakers develop the sound field farther from the front face of the speaker. Near-field monitors are designed to be put on top of a, a console or just right behind it so that you're sitting within a few feet of them and you will hear the full frequency response and dynamic range of that speaker as a near-field monitor. There are also mid-field monitors and far-field monitors like... Uh, <clears throat> Like you'd see on a stage, uh, those are far-field monitors. Good, Bill. I think it was an excellent, excellent description of what these do. You know, most of us started out, we bought stereo speakers for our living room. That was a big space, and we wanted to be able to fill the room, particularly if we had a party or something like going on. And near fields have to be uh, very close to you, but still accurate. And that's particularly challenging for uh, the older near-field small speakers because developing a robust and accurate bass out of a small speaker is harder than if you have large work woofers to work with. But I think Marty hit 90% of it. Go ahead, Ronnie. Oops, I can't mean. hear you, Ronnie. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, what, what has been said uh, by by Marty and, and um, I have uh, I have some uh, speakers here uh, right at my my desktop, which I use all the time for listening to. And what speakers uh, are those? Uh, these are the Yamaha HS five, I think, the smallest one uh, mm -hmm. of the uh, Yamaha series. Uh, well known for the white cones uh, you always <laughs> see in all the studios. So this has uh, worked uh, flawlessly for us and. Uh, uh, both XLR uh, input level and uh, uh, jack inputs as well. Mm -hmm. So you have to, of course, feed them from a, a signal, and uh, they are active. So sounds good and uh, really good to to place the stereo image uh, pointing uh, to each of the ears we have uh, to to hear with. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, everyone has uh, covered most of the stuff. I was just going to say, uh, in my day, or at least. Uh, 
as I was coming up through radio and audio, uh, I'd see a pair of these Auratone speakers as near-field monitors on top of most uh, most consoles out there, these little cubes you can see. You can get a pair of them for $749. And I don't think those are powered speakers, so the Genelex may be better for you if you don't have a high-quality power amp to drive them. Um, so that's just my two cents. Go ahead, Chris. Are the horror tones actually considered to be a near-field monitor? I, I, I thought those were more like, what's this going to sound on AM radio? Yeah, well, that's what I think near-field was kind of used for is for seeing how it was going to sound in a home. Yeah. In the, in, in the late a car on a, on a, on a stair, on a radio, but that was, as I say, growing up in the past, I'm old. In, okay. Right. I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, in the late eighties, mix magazine did a, a, a poll of a studio equipment that everybody had in the only piece of equipment that was in every studio polled was the Yamaha NS 10 near field monitor. They were in every studio that was in the polls quite interesting bill yeah i just wanted to pop over to near fields are interesting because you can put them on your desk but you can see that my actually are on stands raised up they have a little uh decoupling thing below them and even with near fields as small as they are putting them on a desk there was something that kept bothering me about the sound of monitoring in this space and i thought well maybe i'm getting some desk coupling or rattle or something something's just not seemingly working right so i got a couple of short stands and i mounted them up and angled them down it changed everything and they became incredibly satisfying so sometimes even the fact that it's a near field speaker and you can put it right in front of you with your room and the kind of sound absorbing things you have around you there may be some little adjustments you want to make they're not sometimes always just drop and they're perfect good morning yeah another reason people were using or use near field monitors is to um, kind of remove the sound of the room because you're so close to the loudspeaker you don't need to play it very loud, and therefore you're not exciting the room as much. So the acoustics become uh, less important, uh, less intrusive on the sound that you're getting. Uh, Near-field monitors in today's engineering technology um, have pretty full frequency response. Of course, they, you know, they're usually uh, eight or ten or six-inch uh, so, uh, woofers in them so they have a somewhat limited low frequency response but they can get down to um 100 125 something like that and uh but they are yeah they are they are used to to i insulate you from the resonances of a poor room and to give you an idea of what sound like sound might sound like at home yeah, and and in what I do, we kind of have three zones of things that we think about, which is really the headphone space, the near field space, and the cinema space. And so the cinema space is very different than near field. I think one thing that people make a mistake of is they think they can they can mix in near field and then deliver to cinema, but you really need a a space the size of a theater to mix it uh, to mix a cinema. And the reason for that is that the physics are completely different. So the sound that sounds very full in a near field um, uh, environment will sound very stark and very sourcey in a in a theater environment um, because it falls off much faster. And so it's definitely something that, so when you think about those, those are the three major spaces that, that we think a lot about um, in, in what I do. Um, next question. 
Funshaktar Jians, Dharamshala, India, says, I connect my iPad using a Lightning plus Ethernet adapter to use HyperSlow Pro to control HyperDex for replays. My OEM adapter doesn't work. I get this accessory requires too much power note. A cheap Chinese one does work. Any recommendations? Yeah, I'm not sure why the Chinese one works and the other one doesn't. I, one thing you want to make sure of is depending on how you're connecting that is if you're just doing a straight lightning to Ethernet, you do need a lightning, uh, you do need a power to go back to the iPad or it will complain. So that's the proper way for the iPad to respond. What's most likely happening is the Chinese is not, the Chinese adapter is not giving you that. So uh, what you want to look for uh, is a lightning typically um, there's a couple different ways to approach that. What you're looking for is actually two adapters. One is a lightning to two lightnings or a lightning to a um, USB and lightning. And the reason that you want that to, ha to be there is so that you can re-inject lightning back to the iPad. So even though your iPad may last long enough, it's going to complain about the fact that it's not getting power and it's, and it's using power for something else. So what you want to do is have it, There's they have adapters that have, um, you know, two lightnings, like for instance, this one is a lightning. This is uh let's see if I can cover my face so you can see it. This is a lightning to eight with HDMI. And so I put power into one lightning and HDMI into the other. That way it'll, it'll keep powering my, my iOS device without, um, without, uh, uh, while still being able to generate the signal. Go ahead, Chris. Tell you, I love this community of people because even in his question, have, have you seen this app he's talking about? This HyperSlow Pro? I I have not seen it. I, I saw thing, it with the question and I was like, what is he talking about? This yeah, thing it's, it's looks amazing. Super cool. Look, it looks yeah. you, you could put little uh labels on things. Go to the fumble, let me see the sack down here at the bottom. Yeah. I mean, this is nuts. Yeah, it's a really cool one. And uh <laughs> Jonas, and, um, get to work. And we, and we learned about we learned about it from someone that is uh solid six or seven thousand miles away uh, asking us a question about a lightning that's the power of office hours right there <laughs> so so uh Funsuk, uh if, if you um uh let us know if that answers your question though but i think what your problem is right now is again the way i usually adapt ethernet is i have a lightning to lightning and, and uh usb and then i have a usb to, to ethernet adapter and i I tape those adapters together <laughs> with, it's a very high tech, um, and uh, to make sure that they don't come out. Uh, and that may, I think that's going to solve your problem. And it's a really cool app, and we should talk more about that. Next question. Next one comes to us from Mitchell Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. What do you think of the new Audio Sigma Pod Mobile? Mobile podcasting with excellent preamps, and he's got a link there to audiosigma.com. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, as far as uh, being a mobile or a portable solution, I mean, I'll just start off with, um, and, and if anyone has seen it, here's two things that don't go together. A device that is completely exposed, all of the internal circuit board and components, and being mobile and traveling and throwing something in a backpack and throwing it around different tables and coffee and everything else. So 
I don't know what they're thinking. I mean, visually, it's interesting to look at, but it's kind of like, you know, you put it in a clear case and show everyone like an art piece. So uh, aside from whatever the fundamentals might be, um, you know, I, I would just offer up a, a plug for um, George the Tech, you know, frequent uh, contributor and panelist. He, to look again, he partnered up, uh, he and some of his partners partnered up with, um, I want to get it right, Sentrance. Uh, to make a version for really targeting voiceover, but in other words, solving all the problems, very similar in size and form factor, but sealed and and really dealt with a lot of the specific complaints that voiceover versus music folks have had. And of course, it all applies to podcasting as well, but exposing all the things on just buttons, no software for the folks that like buttons and knobs, and an amazing array of features that they Centrance didn't have on their existing models. This thing, it just seems like a weird combination. Yeah, I mean, talking just to this specifically, I mean, it may, it may sound good. I completely agree, though, leaving even the dials. When... when Someone says mobile, and I think that this isn't a problem that that this company has. Um, it's a problem that I've seen in other places as well. Is when you say something's mobile, it for me it means I need to have it be in a closed box. Like I, I need to be able to push the dials in, cover the dials, do something. It's really annoying to have to manage a lot of external, um, you know, dials. If you look at even something like a mix pre, you know, there those little arms that come out in the front are designed to protect the dials. <laughs> you know, like that's what they're that's what they're there for. Um, you know, and so I think that uh, this one looks like I would never put it in a I would never put it in a backpack because I'd have to figure out how to manage it. Um, so I think that, that it's not as mobile as I think I'd like it to be. Um, it looks kind of cool, um, but you know, we'd have to see fit and finish of those di of those dials as well. So it, it, it's interesting. It's an interesting idea, um, but I I, th I don't know if it's all. I don't. It'll be interesting to see if they if they succeed. Next question. Andy Korkendorfer of VR Florida. Thoughts on the Sony HXC FZ90 cam just announced, and he's got a newshooter.com link there. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I took a look at their website. Uh, it's interesting in a couple of ways. It is just a uh, it is just a live camera. It's not a camcorder. I don't believe it. It can send a 12 gig uh, 4K signal to an external recorder. Uh, it's shoulder mounted. It's designed, you know, for sports or handheld use. Uh, one interesting thing that caught my eye, though, is you go down here under key features and you see optional 4K license available on a weekly, monthly, or permanent basis. So they sell you a 4K camera but they license the use of it to you so they can squeeze some extra money out of you. You own the hardware. It can do 4K, but unless you pay them a monthly fee or a permanent fee or a lifetime fee for that capability of the equipment you just bought, you can't use it, which irks me beyond. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Chris. Courtney, I would say if, it, if you call it extra money, is it really yours? I'm just, I'm just wondering. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Well, for me, the interesting thing, I couldn't find it out. I looked at this beforehand is the price. How much are they asking for this? Um, you know, they kept saying affordable, affordable, affordable through everything I read. Now, is Sony's opinion of an affordable camera in that form factor and mine in alignment, or do they diverge? I think that question is still up in the air for me. You can buy a lot of really good cameras for five to $10,000 to $10, that have Super 35 or above. Uh, I, I don't consider two thirds inch, um, chips even interesting unless I'm going to 75 feet or more. So I won't use a, a two thirds inch chip, uh, or smaller. I won't use smaller than super 35 under 
75 feet. <laughs> That's the, you know, and so um, so I think that I mean, we've kind of moved past a lot of this stuff. They're selling to, I think, you know, legacy um, legacy broadcasters is what, what this is designed for, not next-gen events. Uh, next question. Todd Reynolds in North Adams, Massachusetts. I'm looking for the perfect monitor to double as a teleprompter monitor and an external touchscreen travel monitor for my M1. May I ask for some recommendations? And yes, at any price. And he's looking for something in the 14 to 17 inch zone. Gold plated. Marty? All right. Well, I'm going to go with the Desk Lab monitor. Um, it's a 15 inch touchscreen, 4K. Or 1080, you can order it either way. And it's $400 for a 4K monitor, which is probably in most people's uh, budget. And if you buy two of them, there's an option here to buy two of them. They're even less than $400 apiece. You can you have to order um, a flip case for it to protect it. That's a separate purchase, but it's not a lot of money. The only drawback to this monitor, and I have a few of these, uh, they look great. They've got lots of features. Um, they can be flipped for teleprompters. The only drawback to this is that there is really no built-in way to mount it on any kind of a stand. So I've used a, I found a large tablet holder that will work, but it's a 15-inch monitor, so it's got to be a large tablet holder. Um, that's the only drawback. And I've asked them about it, and they don't seem interested in in addressing that problem. But it is a really good monitor for a really good price. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, a couple of problems I don't understand with your question, Todd, and that, uh, A, you're going to use it on an M1, which is a Mac uh, product with touch, and there's no touch in the Mac OS Oh, there is. I mean, you can, you can so the monitors will return. If you use a touch monitor, it will return a USB signal and it just, it's like, it just gives it mouse. It, it's the same okay, as having it a cursor. Converts mouse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other problem is, uh, as far as using it as a teleprompter and touch involved, uh, it'd be interesting to see what the one that Marty recommended, hand, how it handles this. If you reverse the video image, you have to also re uh, reverse the touch points. So I don't know if that is handled in the monitor, if the software handles that. And the second problem is uh, if you're using it for a teleprompter, you want something with a high brightness output. And, and uh, most of these portable monitors are only about 250 to 300 nits. I haven't seen any high brightness ones uh, that are in this thin portable. If you want to go cheaper, I found these ViewSonics 15-inch touch monitors, uh, portable monitor for about 239 bucks. View, ViewSonic is a good brand. But I think the, uh, I couldn't, I looked for the uh, lumens output on it and I couldn't find a, a spec on it. So it's probably around 250 to 300. Uh, but you can find this is powered off a USB. It has touch. Uh, it plugs, it says it works with the Macintosh and the M1. So that can work for you too, cheaper. I don't know if it has built-in reverse image in it or whether you have to do that in software if you're going to use it for a teleprompter. Good, Chris. Yeah, the reverse image uh, question is is a interesting one. Do I touch this side or that side? So, uh, Alex, I wanted to get a clarification. You said that uh, the touch, most of the touch monitors will just uh, basically give you mouse control. Is that is that it correct? Should, it should return it as mouse. Now, I've not used them with with USB C. So, the monitors that I've used that are touch that can work with a Mac have you know you plug it in on HDMI as well as USB A. Um, so I haven't done the USB-C connection, but the USB-A, you know, you have two of those, you know, and, and it'll, I have, I used to, 
before this existed on a Wacom, it existed on touchscreens. <laughs> so that's how I know that it, that, they, that they at least used to work right. uh, as, I, as I put those together. And that was a solid almost 10 years ago. And then Marty, your recommendation, are, have you used that with a Macintosh? I haven't used it with a Mac. I had it oh, okay. connected to uh, a Windows laptop with just a USB-C and yeah, it did do different. video and touch. Um, and the brightness on this is 400 nits. Yeah. I've heard, I've just have heard that, uh, talking with, with, uh, Jack, that the, uh, the touch support for screens is not exemplary in the Mac ecosystem, but maybe. well, I have an M2 I, laptop I, here so I can try it and let you know. Yeah. I, I know that I went through three or four I don't remember what, the, I mean, this is a long time ago, but I went through three or four monitors before I got it, the touch to work. So it was not, also, it was not also, every monitor works, but you have, but if you, you'll see it in Amazon it says Mac OS, you know, compatible and it will generally work. Also let us know oh, wait, how the uh, reverse image works with the touch, if that mm -hmm. works or, or not. The, yeah, it will do. The other thing to note is that you can coat them. <laughs> you can have them coated uh, so that they're, they're touch. There's a, there's a services that will, uh, coat your screen and make it a touch screen um, as opposed to, and they have an output there. So it's a, it's a, I don't know what kind of touch, but it, you can actually have monitors retrofitted uh, for touch to make that work. Now, Chris, what was the monitor that you talked about last? Uh, oh, um, so glad you mentioned that. So yeah, we brought that up. That you was were going to get, I was going to throw the ball to you, whether you raised your hand or not. I mean, it was, I was like, when so I saw the question, I was it's like, the oh, unnamed the or Coco Mar or Co Coco, whatever. Oh, no, no, it's Coco. Wait, what is it? Coco? I can't remember. So here's the thing. Uh, Nigel had asked the question, and I talked to him yesterday afternoon, and he said, so I, I thought your recommendation was awful, so I bought a much cheaper one. <laughs> well, who makes that one? It's, it's, uh... But his is one inch smaller than mine. Um, I, I think it was Coke. I, I, I don't know. Do I have to go through this again? Coco Par. It's Coco Par. Coco Par. Coco but it's... It's 4K. It looks great. It's easy as pie to set up. Just one cable done. And what's interesting is that there's some Cocoa Par. You have to be careful. There's some Cocoa Pars that are and, not very expensive and some that are very expensive. That's the uh, other I thing. opt for the more expensive one because uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to be more like you, Alex. And it has a Visa. <laughs> Why it spend has, $10 when you can spend 100 <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And then you could be accepted by Alex. Uh, but this has Visa mounts on the back. It's pretty cool. The visa mount is an important thing. Now, some of the other things we've done with monitors is suction cups and... Uh, that and sounds like a horrible idea. Are you kidding? It, it, it works on thicker ones, um, not on the thin, thin ones. Um, and, then, uh, and then the other thing we've done is uh, Loctite. <laughs> Go ahead, Marty. Just install, we installed a visa mount on it. <laughs> like it was like, this is yeah, not no going epoxy away. nearby. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, epoxy maybe. I don't know about suction cups. Depending on the finish, it's got to be a really smooth, like glass-like finish yeah, yeah. for a suction cup. <laughs> Wait, uh, yeah, the ahead, suction uh, cups, you're not putting them on the front, right? On the back. On the back. For, oh, that's uh, much better. Yeah, yeah. I, would, I wasn't going to put them on the front. That would be silly. <laughs> uh, anyway, go ahead, uh, Nigel. Yeah, so I couldn't afford the $700 that... Uh, uh, Chris spent on his. So I spent $229 on one, which is called a Magic Craven 4K monitor. And what, there are a couple of things that were important to me because there's a lot of really cheap monitors. Is I wanted a an HDMI connection, although it's HDMI mini, but I wanted HDMI and I wanted the Visa mount. Um, 
it was same day, which it then sent me a message saying means between 4 a.m. and 11 a.m. of the next day. So it's now overnight and it's still not here. So uh, we'll see if it ever turns up. But that's that's where I went. You know, it's got a magic craving 4K. If you had spent $800 on a cocoa pie, it'd probably be in your hands right now. That's all I got to say. Jeff? Uh, I don't know if anyone saw this, just to touch on the touch um, for a moment. Uh, If anyone remembers the Leap Motion controller, I think it was like 10 years ago. And if anyone saw this, they, out of the blue, just came out with a version 2. I I tried the first one 10 years ago, and it was okay uh, for for 10-year-old touch tracking. Uh, This one, I'm not even going to show the pictures because... I don't know who their marketing folks are. The pictures on the website make it look like it's the size of like a sound bar, but it's really small. It's, it's, it's like this big and so very portable. And, you know, it took them 10 years of development. So you, it better be good. I haven't watched any of the reviews, but if it works well, it would be something that could be ultra portable. And you just, um, you know, Courtney will 3D print a little mount for you to put it on top of that monitor, whichever one you get, and then you have it with you. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. And it's funny, I worked on the introduction of that Leap product 10 years ago. And I know it was 10 years ago because I had uh, that we were showing it in conjunction with a CRT monitor. Um, I was going to uh, say for mounting, the things that have VESA mounts on the back of them, I'd be very wary of that. If they have <clears throat> screw holes that go in there, you have to get pretty short screws. And if the screws are not, if the screw holes are not dead ended, uh, they, you could screw a screw into the back of the display and destroy your uh, backlight and or your LCD. Uh, what I do, I have two monitors mounted beside me here with 3D printed uh, uh, adapter to hold the monitor. And what I do is I just take this flat plate here and I put command strip across the top and the bottom. And I put two command strips, uh, which is the hard Velcro on the back of the monitor. And it's easily removable without leaving a mark. And just press it onto there and it seems to hold them none of them have fallen off yet and they've been sitting here for two years and one's a touch screen so i bang on it all the time uh so this seems to work 3d printed automatically and it goes onto a uh, you know magic arm go ahead uh, john your useless trivia for today the founder of leap motion is now the ceo of, of mid journey really whoa that's crazy. What does that have to do with touch monitors? It doesn't, but Nothing. it's just, you know, <laughs> but, but, but it's tangential. And anyway, yeah. And, and by the way, the, the Cocoa Par uh, drops dramatically if you go to 1080p. So if you decide you don't need 4K, it's 300 bucks. It's, it's if you do 4K, then it's $700. Cocoa Par for the win. Cocoa. Well, it's just, I'm just saying, I don't know if it's for the win, but it's definitely, it's got a lot of USB and a mini HDMI in the little $300 one. It's quite a thing. Uh, next question. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware. I'd like to turn my Aphex channel mic processor into a Dante device. If I use a pair of Dante IVO modules, would that introduce any unwanted noise? Uh, go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I don't know that particular answer, but I'm playing with something similar, but I'm using a Clark Technic DN30T, which seems to be an interesting way to get analog into a Dante. So I, I didn't just an additional thought on that question. Go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so the Aphex uh, has a line-level output, um, and so you would uh, bring them into the Avio as line-level, because the Avios don't have mic preamps. They're only line-level inputs. Um, 
And as such, they really shouldn't introduce any additional noise that would would be noticeable because um, they don't have preamps in them. So they're just converting the line level signal to digital and they do a pretty good job at that. So to answer the question, no, they, they should not introduce any additional noise. Good morning. Um, oh, sorry. Good morning. Yeah. Now that, that unit has um, uh, line level outputs on TRS connectors. So you'll need to get adapters to go into, and you can use a single Avio adapter that has two XLR inputs. So you don't need two of them. You just need one. Ronnie? I have to disagree a little bit. Uh, we use a lot of these modules and um, going out from the very high quality uh, processor that uh, you have, um, I, w I would think that the AVOs are more like um, Focusrite 2i2 type of signal quality. Um, Ordinate is not really, really good at uh, the analog piece before the inputs uh, and the output modules are even a little bit worse. I'll put the link uh, into Mokana for a, a review that has been done a, a few uh, years back. Next question. Jettelflag Gerswald in Tromsø, Norway. During an event where I'm hired to do a really specific part of a larger production, I'm often requested by the client to do tasks not originally ordered. Where is the cutoff from being nice and forthcoming to a hard, no, I won't do that? Good, Bill. Well, you're edging into the area of set etiquette, which is a pretty touchy place to be. On the top end in union sets and things like that, you do not go outside of your lane and touch anything. You're not up authorized specifically to touch. Uh, you know, a, I will get somebody who can help you with that is a much safer thing than just acquiescing. Now, as the, the budgets get lower and the sets get more informal, there's more of this that goes on. I'm not sure I would ever come up with something as curt as, no, I won't do that. But um, talking your way around helping when you can and when it's appropriate, after you've been on sets for a while and know it's appropriate, that attitude, I will pitch in where I can and help, is very valuable. But just be aware of that other side of it, that as you get into more formal sets, being helpful can be as big a problem as being non-helpful. Good, Nigel. Scope creep is always a problem. If you're being paid a million dollars to do something, your scope will have to be a little more flexible than if you're being paid $10,000. But be really clear with the client of the scope of what you're doing. And then when they come and ask you to do something different, you bring the scope out in the nicest possible way and say, this is my highest priority. Has something changed in this scope? I go ahead, Chris. Yeah, kind of like what Bill said, you got to make sure you're not stepping on somebody else's toes if you do offer to help out. And I think that if um, if a casual, um, friendly request has any uh, possibility in infringing on the work that you actually were hired to do, that's, that's where you draw the line. I like to be the guy who... Um, you know, works quickly and efficiently, gets my stuff done, and then, you know, I, I prefer helping out, mainly because I just don't want to be bored, you know? So I, I'm often asking people, hey, is there anything else I can do for you while I'm sitting here waiting for whatever to happen? Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a sticky process. <laughs> um, I, I will say that uh, one of the things that that we do a lot of is I, I, I do, when I can, I try to 
set myself up to be about 40 at about 40% capacity. You know, um, you know, that's what I'm aiming for. So that everyone, everyone feels it's, they don't feel bored, but they don't feel overwhelmed, you know, and that we still have some headroom and so on and so forth. When someone makes a request or I see something that could be fixed, then I don't think I'm going to go over 60% capacity to do that. Like if I think it's going to be well within what I'm doing, uh, oftentimes I'll look at, at the opportunity to, to take that on. Um, there are opportunities to learn. There's also opportunities to do something. Uh, uh, 80% of the time that I've taken something on within uh, a couple shows, I'm the one doing it, <laughs> not whoever was hired to do it before. <laughs> so, so the, um, so the, uh, so that's why people don't like you to step into their lane is because people like me will take the lane eventually. Um, and so, like, if I know, if I know the people around me, uh, the other vendors, um, then I'm extremely lane driven you know, to the people, to, to the folks that I've worked with in the past, if I don't know, they're just, they're just another vendor, <laughs> you know, like it's so, so, and I'm extremely, uh, tribal that way. Like if someone brings me in or I work with someone regularly, um, I will not get anywhere near their lane. If they're, if, if I don't know them very well, then, then everything's, you know, I'm, I'm looking for work. <laughs> you know, so, so, uh, so I think that that's the, that's the difference in, in kind of a societal kind of process, uh, in, in production, at least in corporate, um, the, uh, so I'm looking for things and usually I'm interested in, do I want to do that in the future for this client or for another client? I can figure something out. I can learn something about how to do that. The big problem you have to be careful of is, um, once you take something on, you're liable for it. So there's a lot of people who in these things, you know, there's a bus, you want to, you just don't want to stay, you, you know, you always are in corporate events, you're always trying to stay away from the front of the bus. So, um, you know, like you want to be in the back of the bus, you know, like, you know, and, and, and when you're, you know, there's and and, not under the bus and not, well, when you get near the front of the bus is when you're much, much closer, much, is much more likely that you're going to get under the bus. And, and so when something goes wrong and when everything goes well, everybody's happy and it doesn't really matter when something goes wrong, everybody's looking for who's closest to the front of the bus and boop, they go under, you know, like it's, and, and when you, when you're, when you're late, when you're disorganized, when you look disheveled, when your equipment doesn't look good, when you're when you don't have client um, inter good client interactions, um, when you are taking on too many things, when you ask for things from other crews, like like literally start asking for pencils, and you're getting yourself closer to the front of the bus. I won't let my crew even ask for a piece of tape. You know, like like you know, like I'll, I will send someone to a um, store to buy something before asking for the table next to me because you know pretty defensive about about that process and so so the um so i won't ask for anything i will often provide things and we have a lot of extra things usually in our system and we will never never do that to somebody else <laughs> like you know like but but i but i'm i'm prepared to be have it done to me but i never want to do it to somebody else as far as throwing them under the bus um the uh so so the thing is is that uh but what you what you want to be careful of is that when you take that object on if it doesn't work it's now your fault and when you didn't take it on, it was not, it was somebody else's fault. And so you just want to make sure that you know how to do whatever they're asking, or you feel like it's well within your area of strength to do it because they won't remember that you took, they won't remember that you took it on outside of what you said you were going to do. They're just going to remember that it failed and you were the last one touching it. Um, and so, so you just need to be kind of careful of the liability of whatever the client is asking you to do. Um, and, and, and what that's going to look like. And it's, it's just a bigger picture than, than what most people think of when they get, when you get started, you kind of just want to be helpful and you stick, stick after a couple thousand events, you, you kind of look at things and going, well, you know, I, am I going to be able to cradle to grave that, that project? You know, like that's the, that's a lot of the, and I, and this is why we try to not let clients talk to our, 
our technicians because technicians will say yes to everything. They'll be like, oh, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> and then we don't know that they're doing that. And suddenly we're overtaxed because the client asked the, and, and some clients like to talk to technicians because they'll say yes when the producer says no. And so, you know, it's, it's a chain of command thing that you have to worry about as well. Um, just a quick reminder that you can ask uh, questions um, throughout the uh, throughout the hour. So if you've got questions, we've got questions starting to stack up for gain staging. Uh, if you've got questions about gain staging in the second hour, or if you've got questions for the first hour, go ahead and throw those questions in. And remember to vote on those questions because we need to know what order. I don't even know if we're going to get to all the questions by the end of the hour. So make sure to get in there, vote on those questions, set that order for, for our uh, panel. All right, next question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida says for low latency remote voiceover sessions, aside from Source Connect and yes, Zoom, what other platforms are you actively using as the client or being asked to use as the talent? Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and this is kind of funny. You know, there are so many tools available now that as voiceovers, we always like to list our studio capabilities. And and that was easier before there were 30 different tools. And, and um, you know, there are, again, the big ones like Source Connect, of course, that folks use. But, you know, I, I want to know not only which ones to list, but which, you know, I need to know which ones I should be playing with and have installed and, and have ready to go. So I always like to hear what folks are using or being asked to use. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, Jeff, uh, I use Zoom all the time. Uh, I don't do voiceovers like you do, uh, but I really think, and this is a slight plug for the much-discussed and uh, anticipated uh, lab that I'm going to do one day when Alex uh, and I figure out the time, but I really think that the key to doing any of this is having a strong and easy-to-use system for sending out to whatever service you're using, and again, I use Zoom, exactly what you want your people to be able to hear. And I think uh, the the system that I use with SoundDesk and the little Korg mixer and loopback is really, really fun. Actually, uh, Alex, I did a test of my sort of presentation with Nigel the other day, and he gave me some good, good input, and he said uh, it'll be a good lab. Good, Bill. This has so changed, and I think this is way lagging behind where our technology is today. You know, when I started out, you had to have ISDN, an integrated services digital line, in order to participate in national or international voiceover work. Then everybody went to Source Connect, and then everybody – now, I, I do probably two a month where I'm either engineering or participating as a voice talent in a session – I'm doing them all on Zoom, and 90% of the time, there are stakeholders that are phoning in and just listening on their phone. We also do a, a phone patch, and I can't tell you the number of creative directors and other people who are just listening on their phone, and they do just fine, and they contribute in real time, and they can add their content when it's appropriate for them to do that. It's just all broken down. For me, if somebody doesn't want to use Zoom, because it gives me an advantage because of all the things I've learned on office hours. I have a presence here on Zoom that feels really comfortable and professional for me. Um, it's like, do I really want to go and go back to Source Connector? It's like somebody asking me, do you have an ISDN line? It's like, where are you stuck in the 70s? <laughs> What's wrong with you? Why haven't you moved forward in this? This is so easy now to get a locally recorded perfect digital file and in four minutes zap it to the client at the end of the session and they've got everything if they'd gone across town to the best studio in town. Just big changes. Yeah, and 
there's things that we're used to and then things that make it better. And one of the things that, that I found with some of these records is the fact that while a lot of people just phoned it in and a lot of people, when they know that there's a video available and some people start getting on video, it does change the performance. Like when you can see the, the client talking to you and, and you can see those things happening. And so a lot of times, um, we're doing a lot of sessions. It's not quite voiceover. It's it's um, them you know doing testimonials and so on and so forth. But being able to look up into the teleprompter, it's a teleprompter, and then we hit it. It's going through a switcher, so we just tap on it, and it switches. So between takes, the clients start showing up on the screen, and they can sit there and talk to them, and they're looking straight at the same screen that they were looking at before. They're listening to them. They're taking notes. They're doing all the things that they want to do, and then they, we switch back to the teleprompter, and, and then we go go back to what they were doing. And it there's something about it that just feels much more. And, and the clients went from, we had clients that were like, I have to be in the room to uh, sending us all over the world and not, and this is before COVID, before, this is long before COVID, 10 years before COVID. We had clients that were, um, when we started using Interatron, they went from, I have to be in the room and this has to work because that's the way the Interatron, Interatron works. And once we got it working on Skype and Hangouts and now Zoom, they don't, they don't, they're like, do I have to come? I'm like, no, no, you don't. You don't need to come. <laughs> like, like, we can we can sort this out. And we build all the talkbacks and all the in, and we have the teleprompt op, the teleprompt operators. Oftentimes for us are not um, not local either. And so that's a you know, and um, so the, those are all things that have changed uh, pretty dramatically uh, over over time. Um, next question. Next question comes from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. House of Worship is redoing a play in a theater. Will be Blackmagic 6K for recording. For redundancy, I'm going to be using my iPad and one to record. How do I keep it powered in the theater? I'll go ahead, uh, Courtney. Well, by it, I assume you're referring to the iPad. And of course, you know, there's the charger that came with the iPad. So if you have AC available at the point you're going to stick the iPad for recording out in the theater, Plug it into its charger and it'll run all day. The other, the other alternative, of course, is there's lots of portable battery power packs like this Flight Gear iPad battery backup that you can get to uh, recharge your iPad or plug it in and just power it off of it uh, for a long period of time. And the iPad should last you definitely if the batteries are still good in it. Should last you the length of a play unless it's one of those strange, you know plays that last eight hours or something and test the audience's endurance. Uh, you should be able to make it through the play. Just make sure everything is fully charged when you go in. You know. Good, Chris. Yeah, Courtney's better at parsing sentences than I am. I think he, I think Tony was asking about the iPad. I will tell you as an aside, uh, I did the math and I, my, I use my Blackmagic 6K as my webcam here and at a year in, and it was on nonstop for a year and a half before it started to act wonky. So I now unplug it every night. But uh, just a little side note, a year and a half, they start to get wonky. Next question. Next one comes to us from Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. What's happened to the Reddit community? Are office hours folks affected? Go ahead, Jeff. First, as far as what has actually happened, um, Reddit changed their price model for their APIs to access uh, Reddit content to let people use third-party clients. And so, some of the bigger clients that are just 
sucking in tremendous amounts of data, all of a sudden realized their bill would be very high. And some have even said outright that uh, we will have to shut down operations if that's really what we're going to have to pay. And so, of course, the immediate knee-jerk reaction to say, oh my God, the sky is falling. And and so it was a protest for any subreddit that wanted to participate. And some, some didn't participate at all. Some did just Monday, 20 24 hours, others it was supposed to be up to 48. So in other words, everything should be back today. But, um, you know, I mean, we saw this with Twitter. If folks remembered, you know, of course, Twitter started out with every third-party client under the sun. And then slowly but surely, they made changes to the to the way it worked. And, and then many third-party clients were shut out. And people still use Twitter. And, and, you know, something Alex said, I think it was probably years ago, that still really stuck with me, which is a lot of folks have opinions about how businesses should operate who have never had to be responsible for payroll one day in their life. And I think that's what we're seeing. I mean, the business reality sometimes conflicts with other companies' interests. Go ahead, Bill. And if you want more information about it, the term everybody's using is Reddit blackout. So just do a Google search on that and you'll find lots of art articles explaining the what and where of it but it should be all done today I, I uh check. most of them a lot of them are saying they're going to do it indefinitely so there there's there was a they originally said there was going to be two days and now they're now they're going to hang out for a little while longer uh you know the bottom line was i, I mean I, I don't know i think that the the big issue with reddit was is that this is why you want companies to make money on sales like they talk about the apple store and other things is because then it matters when they're when they make changes to them financially but t turning this all off doesn't make any financial difference to reddit because they weren't making any money before so so i think that that you know they they had um you know the the, the challenge is that a lot of people were using the third-party apps because the web page is atrocious you know and so you know i you know they were able to get away with growing without actually um, making any headway on any kind of user interface um, and so the, and people were very, you know, connected to these other apps. I know I don't use the, I mean, when I use Reddit, I use third-party app where I did use third-party apps, um, or, you know, and so I think that that, uh, you know, that was the issue is a lot of people use it. They're very connected. They don't want to go back to the webpage. They don't know how to manage that. These companies were making money on that and, and you know, generating revenue from that. And so, and the, they're just the the Apollos in the in the world and everything else are just collateral damage. What Reddit wants is they want to get paid by OpenAI. You know, like they that's where they you know the, they are a very valuable source of information for G, you know the Chat GPTs and and, and diffusion uh, models. And so because they have so much information in, in inside of them, they've accumulated. That's why we use Reddit is because it has all that inf information accumulated. And so they want they they're not looking for a payday from Apollo. Apollo is just the you know, the collateral damage of they want open AI to be pay them big bucks, you know, and that makes a huge difference when they're when they're going into a um, uh, an IPO. The problem they really have created, though, is that, you know, they, they say that trust uh, arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. Um, they have irreparably damaged their relationship with their users. Um, they're not going to be, you know, they will be able to muscle through it, but no one's going to get over it. And if there's ever a competitor, there's not really a competitor right now. That's why they can do it. But everyone's looking to go now, <laughs> like you know, like and and that's a that that's a really fragile state to be in, um, you know. But there's nowhere to go. Same thing with Twitter. There's nowhere to go right now. But it definitely opens up opportunities for other people and other platforms. But 
But, but we didn't see that with Twitter, right? I mean, that's what everyone said day one when they really well, started Twitter, making some of these Twitter's changes. Twitter's lost a that, lot of revenue. I mean, you know, they've lost a lot of revenue lately, and they've lost but, a lot of users. I mean, but they, this was years ago I'm talking about when they really clamped down on on what would affect some of the third-party apps that people were using. This was years ago. Yeah. And and those folks didn't leave Twitter. They they got over it. And for the most part. Yeah, and I, I, I think the, Twitter, the Twitter audience and, and the, and the uh, Reddit audience are different you know like you know and and i think that and i think that the uh the, the real challenge is is that uh this shows you the challenge of any social network and this is the gaping gap for social media is that they can't make changes like they can't you you know like as any third grader will tell you you can't change the rules in the middle of the game and um and so uh in this case they can't um you know they they're gonna have a hard time if anybody comes up with something more interesting than what they have uh, most of these social networks can't make any any movement because their their users have you know YouTube tried to go to real names and they had insurrection like this and they backed down pretty quickly um, and so any of these changes will cause a lot of trouble which means they can't they don't have a lot of dexterity to change if something else shows up to their right or left they can't move to it to 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 take care of it um, next question Tony Mobley in Noonan Georgia is in next with has YouTube changed its monetization process and if it has. When will the new process take place? I don't think there's any significant change in the YouTube process right now. And unless you are, unless you have hundreds of thousands or millions of followers, I'm not sure if it, if it, if it will have a huge impact on you, even if they made the change. Go ahead, uh, John. They added this new lower level at 500 subscribers with 3,000 public watch hours from the last uh, 365. But you only get shopping for your own products. You get super chat, super stickers, and super thanks. You can't mm -hmm. you can't get ad revenue unless you have a thousand subscribers or higher. Yeah. Uh, next question. Shuttleflog Gersfeld in Tromsø, Norway. Again, what is a good and recommended workflow inside Resolve to extract short clips from a long timeline to square or nine by sixteen social media posts? You know, I, it's funny, I don't use Resolve for that type of output. So I don't know if we have folks that are, you know, usually when we start going to that kind of output, we've, we've begun to do a lot of testing around the script. So we output what we're, our final product and, and then put it out there. You can, of course, build those social um, systems. So you can, um, you know, build your product into that. I don't know about the easiest way to funnel the product into that, Good Bill. Yeah, I, you know, both Premiere, Premiere did, I think, first had a specific social media uh, set of templates in there and exports. Final Cut also does it as well, but I don't know anybody Resolve who does uses, that. No, Resolve they, has yeah, those, so they, they have those formats. The question is, is can you finish something at 16 by 9 and then easily post it to uh, a 1 by 1 or 9 by 16? And I'm not 100% sure. Um, next question. Funchak Dorji of Dharamshala, India, is back again with, I am using a lightning to lightning plus USB, and I connect a USB to Ethernet adapter in the USB and connect the power to the lightning. Does that, that should work. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a build up from the last question we had. And I don't know why. What I will say, and I know that where you are, it is hard to get authentic Apple uh, connectors. But what I will say is that um, I only use, I don't, I generally when I'm doing production, I only use the Apple adapters because for whatever reason, their handshake is better. And I don't know why. I mean, you know, and there's, and so with specifically with Lightning, with USB-C, I use all kinds of things. But with Lightning, I have learned many times to not use third-party connections. It has um, been painful. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. 
I'll do you one better. I, I've mentioned it a few times on the show. Uh, I've learned both versions of that. So now I always have and I always carry the official Apple one and a third party knockoff right. one because I've literally found the opposite where sometimes Apple, through whatever restriction, won't let something work, but the third party one will. So my tip is always have both. And the good news is, you know, it's like 10 bucks for the knockoff. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Follow up to yesterday's final mouse keyboard question. Let's compare to the Flux keyboard. And then he's got a link to a video there and says, see the first 30 seconds. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, let's not compare because they're both useless. Here's here's a look at the Flux, which is just like the iMouse that we looked at yesterday, which has an, a color LCD screen behind the keyboard, which is transparent elastomeric keys, which are nasty to begin with. Uh, so, you know, I, adding eye candy to a keyboard is pointless in my opinion. I have a, a laptop that has uh, RGB backlights on the keys and they it has this weird attract mode where all the colors are changing in the keys. And I finally found a way to turn it off and just make it a white color behind the keys uh, to, to rear light the, the keyboard. Putting eye candy in the in the keyboard is is stupid. You're not looking at your keyboard. And last time I checked, I didn't have eyes in the end of my fingers. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. You know, and I was frankly surprised by the conversation, uh, especially about well, I guess for the final mouse, you know, I think maybe bad marketing. But and, and Courtney, maybe you have the ability if you could maybe just show like around 20 seconds into that video, if you could switch to it for the flux, they show my big want, which is forget about the pretty stuff. Um, think about changing what the keyboard is. And I'm talking about app functions and shortcuts. You know, uh, as an example for my DAW, I have it highly customized with a ton of custom shortcuts that, that do things. And um, I literally have labels, you know, that I've some handwritten and some printed, but then I change my mind and I decide I want to do something else. And, and to give an example, this is a handheld one that I also use kind of like a remote control, um, and, and look at the mess here. And then when I decide I want to change what this, what these functions are, I have to rip it off and do it again. So, um, and you know, I'll also add, there's lots of programs that I use where I know some of the key shortcuts but i don't know some of the others and it's frankly probably not worth learning but if i could switch into them and have it on the keyboard versus you know this is kind of like what the um touch bar idea was on the mac but now it's your actual keyboard this is i think where the real power will come from and i, and I think frankly um every keyboard will just inherently have this eventually Courtney, real quick, we're going Yeah, I didn't realize that, that you could customize the keypad, but, you know, it may be useful if you have multiple people in the family who speak different languages. I don't know how that happens. Yeah, I, uh, but anyway, uh, the, yeah. muscle memory is how you use a keyboard, and I think having a keyboard that changes function is more difficult to deal with. Yeah, I, I think that um, I really like the idea of it being function driven where it's changing and showing me what keys if I'm jumping from one app to another. And, you know, while I want to build muscle memory, um, being able to know where it is and not have to look through the menus is, is nice. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested in it. Uh, but I, not for the goofy things that they show, but specifically exactly what, what, um, Jeff was talking about, which is changing the keys based on what app I'm in for, 
you know, what I'm trying to do, it would be very interesting. Um, and just and, think like Stream Deck, but an actual keyboard. I mean, that's essentially yeah. the beauty of what Stream Deck. Well, yeah, we all no. learned how popular the touch bar was, didn't we? <laughs> Next question. Uh, let's see. Uh, Alex Olivier in London, the UK. I give a lot of live coding seminars, usually over Riverside FM, not my choice, he notes, from my MacBook Pro, which is attached to an LG ultra-wide monitor. Screen sharing from my UW or my MacBook Pro results in large compression artifacts due to resolution. Any suggestions? You know, the, the keeping the resolution lower, you know, the, the temptation is, is you want to, you're probably showing a 4K image. And uh, the problem really is, is that the way that these work, and especially with, I don't know about Riverside, but a lot of these will, they're trying to, when you go to screen sharing, um, it's trying to do a low, it's, it's putting a lot of bits down a very small pipe, because usually it's a capped pipe, like on Zoom, for instance, we're capped at, about, I think, about 6.25 um, megs per second. And so if you move something, it doesn't have anywhere to go. It doesn't have temporal compression to work with because there's no time. You know, like because it's real time, it's coming out very fast. And so if you start having big things move, you're gonna, you're definitely gonna see tearing um, that, that goes on. And we see this all the time in almost anything that we're doing there. Um, the way that we solve that is usually we have, um, we limit our output to 1080p, which will feel very, very big for a coder. But it is, um, but if we do 1080p, continue to present as video, uh, run it through a switcher um, so that you can switch back and forth between yourself. Um, and I think you're going to find that while it's it will take some time to figure out how you fit all your coding stuff into that, the other thing to remember is, is that you can split your um, devices up. So when we've done training, we will have the other monitors that that we're going to go into that, into or go into the switcher itself. And by doing that, you can switch from this monitor, that monitor, that monitor to you, to super sources, to show these things in these over here. And so you can extend that that in other ways other than using an ultra wide or a 4K monitor. But I think those are the things you wanna kind of consider. But getting back to a 1080p video is what all of these things are built for. And if you start putting something more than that in, you will have difficulty. Uh, next question. Mitchell Hill has one from Wilmington, Delaware, and I'll try to do the last part of this fine. My Neve 8801 channel processor has a digital out, but when sending a mono signal only, it appears on the left channel of the AES. Is there any way, I think he means to coax it onto both channels? It's COAX. So any way to coax it onto both channels? I don't know what he was implying here. Coax. So yeah, it's, it's, I think he wants to get it to both channels there. Um, I don't, I would do that down stream so i would take that you know now that you have it in aes um, you're going to deliver it somewhere and then move it move it to the channels that you want to there i wouldn't try to do it before that that's taking your beautiful neve information <laughs> putting it through cheap uh, hardware to get it to do something else i wouldn't i wouldn't try to do it there now, next question uh, Douglas Carmichael says for someone who is interested in taking his career to the intersection between IT and media what demonstrative skill set and or project could make a good impression on potential employers would iOS development be a good choice considering the Vision Pro? You know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, areas right now that need both IT and media. So I don't know if that's the, you know, iOS is, you know, what's most important is to take time and start to do, you know, pick one. Um, anything that you do well in this area that you cross over is going to do it. I think the challenge a lot of people get into is, trying to do too many different things all at one time, you know, and then they don't get really good at one thing or another. So um, I would be trying to do media work. Um, knowing some iOS development isn't a bad idea. The Vision Pro is probably going to be a pretty big growth market for the next five years. Um, it's probably going to spike pretty, pretty hard. 
um, you know, there's a lot of, everybody's looking at it. <laughs> so, so, but you don't need to go into iOS development to be a Vision Pro development. All the libraries for the Vision Pro are already out. So you could just focus on that um, and learn, you know, you have to learn general Mac development, but the Vision Pro is going to be, you know, it's a green field. And usually a lot of us start looking at that and figuring out where we want to put cabins. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. The Poly Studio P21 personal meeting display is an all-in-one monitor, camera, microphone, speaker, charging pad, and lighting system for use in online meetings. And since Poly is an audio company, the mic is great. It's on sale right now at B&H Comments. Uh, I'm generally not a big fan of all-in-one. <laughs> I just feel like it's. I'm going to be. I'm going to be. You know, paying for a lot of things, and half of them I'm not going to use. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. One for Nigel DeSau. And sorry if I asked this previously, but what excited you or otherwise uh, about home automation and stuff at the WWDC? I go ahead, Nigel. Uh, not much, really. Uh, I didn't see that much of it. And I think Matt in particular is like that old joke. Uh, it may not be as close as it appears. Uh, I think the reality is that everybody's trying to work out how to make uh you know, heterogeneous things work together. That's going to be really hard um, in the home environment. You need to pick a manufacturer and stick with it. Yes. And as Apple user, I just wish Apple would just make devices. <laughs> just call it a day. You know, just just the core devices that most of us want to use. And, uh, you know, and, and then let everybody else try to follow along. I, I think I've, again, we've talked about this over and over again. I've spent 20 years trying to get automation to really work with my stuff. And I don't have... I don't have the money to pay someone else to do it or I haven't, I haven't allocated the money to do that. And um, I just want to be able to buy things and plug them in and have them work. And I did, I will say that I did, uh, I did get this working. It's, it works some of the time and I can't figure this, this is a good example of it. It's a, if I say, uh, hey, oh, I guess it won't affect you guys. Hey Siri, run the shortcut lights out. No, see, doesn't work. <laughs> It, it works some of the time. It, work, it doesn't work other times. It, it, it's, it's because I have too many Apple devices in one place and it gets confused and it doesn't know what to do. See, so I'm still still there. Uh, next, go. Oh. We are now changing subjects to the second hour and, uh, and jumping into gain staging. Marty Atias is here to show us a little bit about gain staging. Uh, if you've got questions about it, this is a really, really important subject because it is oftentimes something that's kind of hidden in your pipeline that is ruining your audio. Um, and, and so it, it, it's something that um, the, one of the first things I was at, a, um, we were at a, an event in, uh, in Vegas and we're hearing a lot of noise and a lot of things going on. And I sent my, I had this, one of my crack, you know, A1s and I just, I just leaned over to him and I go, I need you to go over and, and fix the house gain staging <laughs> like, you know, and, he, and, he, and he just went over there and 15 minutes later everything was clean and even someone at the hotel said this is the cleanest we've ever heard this is what happened and we were like gain staging so so anyway uh it's really really important that you understand it and uh, i'm going to hand hand it off and let marty uh, if you've got questions about this i'm going to hand it off to marty and let him kick off an explanation of what gain staging is and, and how to take advantage of it uh, thank you alex yeah gain staging is very expansive. I mean, it, it covers literally every piece of equipment in the audio system. And so what, what is gain staging and why do we care, right? So 
Gain staging is, is optimizing audio levels and dynamic range uh, to maximize signal-to-noise ratio and minimize distortion through every piece of equipment and every stage within a single piece of equipment in the entire audio chain. So um, uh, let's say you, you go out running, right? We know that <clears throat> we can run really, really slowly and not get anywhere, and we can last an awful long time, or we can sprint, run as fast as we can, and burn out quickly. But we also know that there is a particular rate at which you can run that optimizes your energy, optimizes your longevity, your, your endurance, and, you know, this is the range that is optimum for you, right? So um, if we take a look at what dynamic range is and signal-to-noise ratio, we'll see that um, at the bottom of the audio scale, there's noise. It's so low a signal strength that you can't distinguish it from the noise. Every piece of electronic equipment generates some noise we call thermal noise, right? Even a lowly resistor, which is a carbon-based unit, generates some noise when electrons flow through it. Uh, <clears throat> op amps, capacitors, all the electronic components, they generate some level of noise, albeit very, very low, but if you amplify it enough, you will hear it. So um, at the bottom, we have noise. Then we have our signal above that. And we'll reach a point where we have the reference level. The reference level is that level which the piece of equipment is expecting audio signal to come in and will go out. In professional audio equipment, that's typically plus four dBm or dBU, right? Um, then above that, we have a certain amount of headroom before we start clipping the signal, right? So let's take a look at a typical signal. This is just any old signal. We can see a different representation here. And we can see um, over here, we have um, an anticipated peak. And this could be a drum hit, right? But it's not going above this minus 15 mark. Um, but this one over here is, but it's not going as far as this one, which is actually clipping. So this is what we call headroom. Headroom is above the, uh, is that extra little cushion at the top end just before we get into clipping. And if we look at a different representation, so this is a waveform that you might see on a DAW, right? And so we have high density audio here, which could be the bulk of the band, and, and this is within the average levels. But then we have these drum hits here, which go up into peaks, but they should not go so far as to being uh, clipped. Now, in a digital realm, these clipping points are when the signal has used all of the bits in that word, whether it be a 16 uh, uh 24-bit word or so on, when you use the all of the bits, you've run out, so you cannot get any more signal gain out of it. 
In the analog world, this clipping point is related to the voltage rails that um, the electronic components operate on. So within the circuit board, there's a power supply. That power supply provides voltage to the op amps. And um, that voltage represents the highest level that can pass signal through it without clipping. So <clears throat> then we get into all of the various pieces of equipment that go into making up a, an audio chain. In a recording studio, um, we'll start with a microphone, that will go into a preamp, it'll go into an effects unit, an A to D converter, an audio interface into a computer. It gets recorded, then it gets played back through another audio interface, could be the same one, but it's the output part of it, another D to A converter, and then a headphone amp or uh, powered speakers or monitor speakers, uh, and then to your ears. Now, your ears are also have the capability of comparing what the actual band sounds like to what the recorded representation sounds like. And you will be able to hear the difference in any kind of noise that was introduced in the recording process or any kind of distortion that was introduced in the recording process. And we do all of this in the pursuit of tone, right? So whether that tone be absolute transparent clarity, which we like to do here on for speech, or if we're doing music, we might want to color the signal. We might even want to distort the signal. So um, here's a, a typical basic guitar chain for of pedal uh, pedal devices, and um, you know, from the guitar, they might add some compression, distortion, wah-wah, etc., out to the um, amplifier and off to the uh, mixer. And this is a signal chain. This is a signal chain that exists prior to the mixer, but it's a signal chain. And um, we can look at one that's more extensive than that. Some guitar chains, instrument chains, get very extensive. In fact, and all of this needs to be managed for gain, right? Needs to be gain staged. Um, every piece of equipment is going to have an input signal. It's going to have an output signal that feeds into another piece of equipment on its input. And you don't want to overdrive the second piece of equipment or underdrive it and then have to turn up the gain. We're going to take a look at this a little bit more. And then... Um, Here's an interesting chain that I found online. This is uh, David Gilmore's guitar chain from the 1988 tour. Um, and it's quite extensive. And, and in fact, I noticed this little note here. Um, uh, two Mesa Boogie amp heads without speakers uh, were used in series as overload um, <clears throat> as overdrive effects and dummy plugs, dummy resistors were put on the amplifier outputs instead of speakers. And this is in pursuit of the tone that David is particularly looking for for his instrument. So this is a signal chain. Looking at a typical signal chain that we would find, we have a wired microphone, 
which has an output roughly about minus 50 dB going into a mixer, going into the microphone preamp. And then on the output side, we have XLRs going into a power amplifier at plus four. Or, sorry about the uh, missing letters here, an RCA output at a minus 10 level going into an ATEM Mini. And that's interesting because the power amplifier and the ATEM Mini are expecting they operate at different levels. The amplifier, being a more professional piece of equipment, is operating at a plus four balanced input. And so the mixer has to output that in order for the amplifier to run in its optimum range. The ATEM Mini is using an unbalanced input at a consumer level at minus 10. And then the output of the amplifier goes to a loudspeaker at 40 dB, um, could be up to 100 volts. So, um, and we have the possibility of a wireless microphone. So, in a wireless microphone, the microphone preamp is actually inside the transmitter. And that brings the capsule's voltage up to a point where it can it is usable for the wireless transmitter. That gets received, and then the receiver, most receivers have a switch that can output either plus four at a line level or at a microphone level at minus 50 and operate as a wired microphone. So the mixer, you have to watch how you connect this to the mixer, either line level input or mic level input. And we have signal chains before the mixer, and we have signal chains after the mixer. So on the input side, you may have a bunch of wirelesses, wireless microphones, instrument pickups, uh, etc. On the output, you will have uh, a DSP that feeds a power amplifier, feeds a speaker, feeds powered speakers, feeds a submixer into a video switcher. All kinds of things can be going on, and everything needs to be managed. Now, as I mentioned, different pieces of equipment uh, operated in different different uh, audio level ranges or different voltage ranges. And so this is like a comparison. It just shows relatively what we're talking about. Um, a dynamic microphone, for example, operates or outputs anywhere from one millivolt to three millivolts, right? Um, or an equivalent dBU of minus 60 to minus 50. A condenser microphone has a considerably higher output voltage at anywhere from 4 millivolts to 10 millivolts. And you would see that on a meter or a dBU uh, meter of uh, minus 46 to minus 38. Instruments with pickups output um, higher voltage than that anywhere from uh, 25 millivolts to a full one volt and uh, but they operate at a higher impedance uh, you can't just take an instrument and plug it into a mixer in most cases because the impedances will be mismatched and uh, we'll, we'll get to talk about that later then there's the consumer line level which is we know it to be at a minus 10 Anything with an RCA connector on its output 
is operating at a consumer minus 10 level, which is uh, 316 millivolts, roughly. Um, prosumer, which would operate at zero dBU, minus, uh, oh, by the way, consumer line level would be like a minus 32 dB full scale. Uh, prosumer level at a zero dBU would be about a minus 21 dB full scale, operates at 7.775 volts. Then we have real professional line level plus four, which we're going to put on the full scale um, at about a minus 18. And we'll get to that too, to talk about why. And that's 1.228 volts plus four dBU, uh, 1.228 volts. And so above that, we get we really want to be concerned about what is the maximum input and output voltage that a device can tolerate. So if we look at a mixer, there's a preamp input or a line level input, and then there's the output. And so when you look at the specs for a mixer, you'll see those specs listed separately. The microphone, the maximum microphone level input, the maximum line level input, and the maximum output level. And so um, they will go anywhere from a plus 21 to plus 28 dBU. And uh, at that maximum, that's zero dB full scale. That's the top of the scale. It's run out of gas. And that could be anywhere from 10 to 19 volts. And above that, now we're talking about the output of an amplifier at speaker levels could be 100 volts or 145 volts, um, anywhere in there, or even higher. So knowing what kind of equipment that we have is really important because we don't want to connect an, a piece of equipment that's expecting a minus 10 and on its input and connect that to a device that has a plus four output. And we don't want to do the inverse either connect a minus 10 output device to a plus four input device without knowing that it's going to have additional gain. So looking at like what happens inside of a mixer, right? We have, <clears throat> again, that preamp that's operating at minus 50, and that's bringing up the level to a plus four, um, where we can go into the mixers processing. We got a low cut filter, uh, a couple of bands of EQ, a compressor, the channel fader, then the bus sends, master send, matrixes, mixer outputs, and then they can go to, um, say, a portable video switcher rack with a rack mixer in it, a video switcher, and then a streaming encoder. It can also go by USB instead of analog. It can go by USB into a computer, and that computer may have several processes in it that will also need to be gain managed. So here's kind of uh, something I drew up to sort of show the differences that can happen in with a poorly gain staged mixer, right? So um, we have this this scale here. Minus eighteen is is our nominal level, um, and then we have plus twelve, which is like uh, our our 
on set, or, you know, where where our headroom cushion is, uh, minus six and then zero dB. So we have uh, uh, input level, then we have a low cut filter, um, we have uh, uh, the low band EQ that we're cutting, we may boost a little bit on the mids, we may boost even more on the highs. Now our level is too high, so we'll compress it down, and then we'll apply some makeup gain, we'll bring it back up. The channel fader, maybe bring it up a little bit, bus sends, um, bring that down to the master level, then we got matrix levels. I mean, this is a mess, right? Anywhere in here could be introducing noise, or anytime we apply gain, we could be bringing up the noise. Um, anytime we have to lower the level because it's too high, we, we are cutting into our headroom. Now, <clears throat> I want to be clear about something. There is good distortion that is used creatively and is intentional, but then there's distortion that can have very costly consequences, right? Um, if, a, if you have clipping going out of your mixer into your power amplifiers, into your speakers, you could be blowing up your speakers, especially the tweeters. They can be very sensitive. Square waves are a speaker's worst enemy, right? Amplifiers, too, can be blown up if you're overdriving them. Any kind of amplifier can be... You, you overdrive anything, it will last for a while, but then it will, you know, start to melt down. So... You know, just looking at what what distortion is and different kinds of distortion. Here's a here's a sine wave at a particular frequency coming out of a synthesizer. Here's a sine wave at the same frequency going from a guitar going through a distortion pedal, and you can see the difference in the sine wave. But this one here, this one is being overdriven and is being clipped at the top and the bottom of the sine wave. This is bad sign. This is bad distortion. Um, another kind of distortion that can happen, and, and this can be creative distortion or not, um, is uh, having a, a fundamental frequency, but then having harmonics introduced, either by overdriving something or, or, or by inserting it, and then you have this. The result is this distort. This. Uh, harmonically distorted sine wave at the bottom, uh, you know, these are not the original sine waves, but because they have additional components, harmonic components introduced to them, they, um, they are distorted. And a distortion is anything that is not part of the original, anything that is not intended. But in this case, it might be intended because it was intentionally introduced. An equalizer can um, can introduce some unintended and 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 poor results. If you boost a a single frequency by a lot, right, that raises the gain of the entire signal in terms of its total bandwidth. You are raising the gain, which means you are bringing it closer to your clipping level. You are reducing your headroom. And so that's one of the reasons why a lot of engineers will tell you that instead of boosting something like this, you'll want to cut what is objectionable in that signal. So in this case, 
uh, boosting the, the, the high mids, you may be looking for clarity because the signal sounds muddy. Well, then go ahead and boost the low mids and the lows wherever it's, that muddiness sound is coming from. And that way you're not, you'll essentially arrive at the same thing. You can boost one, you can cut the other. When you cut, you're not cutting into your headroom. Noise gates and compressors can affect your headroom as well. Um, a noise gate increases your signal-to-noise ratio, and there, therefore your headroom. But a compressor can actually cut into um, your, your headroom, or and it can also increase your noise. And how does it do that? Let's take a uh, let's take a signal that um, is <clears throat> pretty high right here, and you feel like it's uh, endangering uh, getting close to the clipping range, and so you will compress it downward. Right? You'll do that, and then you'll want to. You may bring up your makeup gain, right? And when you do that, you're bringing up the noise as well as the signal, and so in that way, you're you're increasing your noise and your signal because of the makeup gain that you're, you're applying. So mixer levels um, is an, are an additive thing. Uh, I want to take a look at this. All right. So here is uh, an X32. And um, if you can see this, uh, this is an X32, and I have uh, just pink noise going into eight channels here, and I'm going to mute seven of them, and you can see where the the input signal level is, is averaging at amount around a minus 20, and because there's only one channel here, you can see that the output is at the same level, but every time I introduce a, another channel, bringing in pretty much the same signal or any signal that is at about the same level, you see the output level is going up and up and up. So I hear this all the time from people, um, from novice engineers saying, all of my inputs look great. Why do my bus outputs distorting? Well, that's this is why, because uh, <clears throat> mixing is additive. So what you want to do here is, uh, let me get into, here we go. Uh, I want to bring down all of my inputs, so I would be reducing my preamp gains. To keep my faders at around zero, I would bring my preamp gains down to about a minus 30 in this case, which brings my output to an acceptable level. All right, so let's get back to this. And we're almost done. All right, so let's start looking at some uh, realistic signal chains. We have, uh, we have a mixer, a digital mixer, we have a stage box, and we may have a second digital mixer. Um, and well, the reason I'm bringing this up here is because we have two mixers here, but only one stage box. And 
which one of these is controlling the preamp? Uh, <clears throat> one of these mixers is doing front of house and one of them is doing monitors. And because they're doing different mixes, for some of the reasons that I just showed, each of these mixers may want different levels from the preamp. Uh, but if there's only one stage box and the preamps are in the stage box, there needs to be a way to arbitrate that, which mixer is going to control the preamp. And so there's this um, thing called digital trim in these mixers where one mixer is controlling the preamp and the other one is boosting or cutting in the mixer, but not affecting the preamp. And there are different arrangements for this. So in this particular system, the stage box has two ports. One of them, one each can connect to two mixers. Um, you may have uh, two mixers, one doing front of house and one broadcast, pretty much the same arrangement. Uh, but you can also, with this system, daisy chain one mixer through the other mixer and only one connection to the stage box and here digital trim comes in as well and then you may have all three mixers uh, <clears throat> using a combination of the two and that's about it so um gain staging let's get Excellent. to questions thanks marty when we've got a couple things from the panel as we get started go ahead ronnie yeah, uh, I just had uh, a comment to the um, uh, plus 10 to the minus 4 uh, conversion. Uh, a lot of people are using ATEM uh, uh, mini pros. And what we have uh, started using uh, some time back is this um, uh, adapter, uh, which actually do the conversion very well. It also do another thing. It's uh, separating the earth uh, or ground uh, um, Differential uh, or potentials between the two types of uh, of equipment, while uh, keeping the the high quality. So, uh, I would highly recommend uh, using uh, one of these radial boxes. Uh, we have had really good uh, uh, results uh, using them. Yeah, using DI boxes to interconnect um, <clears throat> prosumer gear or consumer gear with with professional gear is a really good solution. It um, it not only balances or debalances the signal, it also matches impedance and level and can isolate the ground. And and I, I will say that I, you know, the, um, I, when coming out of a computer, I will not use a DI box. You know, so there are definitely places where I use DI boxes to get headphone out to something. But coming out of a computer, I use a USB to XLR output or a USB to TRS, USB to some kind of thing because the amount of noise a DI box adds um, typically is is not. Uh, and, and the biggest problem you end up with is there's a six-inch gap between where it goes into the computer where it's going to pick up noise because it's unbalanced. And that, and um, if I'm at an event and I hear buzz, I literally just look down the hall. I, I look down the tables and I'm looking for a DI box, and I just go in there and I unplug it, and everything goes away. <laughs> like, you know, so it's so it's a, uh, um, and I've gotten you know, it, but I'm laser focused on there's a DI box somewhere in this in this uh, building, and I got to find it. And so, um, so I think that DI box. 
boxes can be great. You just have to be very, very careful with them. Um, I still use USB pre-2s uh, for my computer outputs because um, they're the best. <laughs> they're just really expensive. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, yeah, but thanks, you're, Marty. You're, um, sorry, oh, you're sorry, referring ahead, to you're referring to using the the headphone output port yeah. on a, on a computer. There are these DI boxes that um, have USB ports, and so okay. USB I to the computer, those. and then they can have yeah. either outputs or outputs and inputs. And that's what the USB pre two does is a, is um, uh, is a it's essentially that as a DI box. But as, 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 as I think a lot of us refer to them as we we think of those as USB interfaces as as opposed to DI boxes. And when I hear DI box, I usually think of headphone jacks. And and so you just uh, and Ronnie, I don't know which one you're you're referring to. Yeah, uh, this one is actually the other way around. This is uh, taking a professional signal coming out of a professional mixer or professional equipment uh -huh. and stepping it down, going into the uh, oh, got it. ATM minor. Oh, yeah. Mini, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and this one, yeah, that looks great. Yeah, those are, and those are solid, radio mix solid boxes, you know, for that type of thing. All yeah. right, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, thanks for that, Marty. It was a really thorough explanation of the signal path and how important uh, all the different voltage levels are as it travels through an analog uh, type mixer uh, and an audio path. One thing you didn't touch on is uh, only touched briefly on the A to D conversion because um, in an analog setup, like the ones you were describing, each of those stages along the way can add a little bit of self noise because they're using resistors and capacitors and various other reactive components to adjust that voltage or frequency as it goes through your signal path and each one can add a little bit of noise uh, these days typically we have digital mixers so that the sound is converted from analog uh, into digital so it's numbers and then digital signal processors perform all those functions that were shown he showed in the path of doing equalization and low cut, high pass, compression, et cetera, is all handled numerically uh, in, a, in a digital signal processor. So if you could touch a bit on the importance of bit depth, which controls your basically your noise level and the ability to add things together and avoid distortion and what digital distortion sounds like as opposed to the analog clipping uh, is an important consideration. And this is why 32-bit, uh, which has a much broader um, area to work in without creating distortion, is, is important these days. And lower bit, bit depth can, uh, can be a problem. So if you could discuss that, that would uh, really be appreciated as far as how, how digital impacts that signal path and signal-to-noise signal ratio uh, as opposed to just the analog path. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, as you alluded to, the more bits you have to work with, the more resolution you have at the bottom of the signal range. So your noise floor will be lower, and you'll get more resolution in your audio at lower signal levels. And so when you're dealing with, say, acoustic music or orchestrated music, where you have a really wide dynamic range, you want to use a higher uh, bit depth system, like 92 or 192 or even higher, um, to get that resolution at the low end and the low noise floor. Um, to give you an idea, and I didn't really get to put these numbers together, but um, a 16-bit system has a noise floor of about uh, 90... 
8 dBU. A 24-bit system has a noise floor of about uh, 119 dBU, so considerably lower. And then it gets lower from there. Now, um, along those lines, because a digital mixer is a digital mixer, um, the signal level that you are running through it is utilizing that range of bits in each of the sections or parts of the signal chain that it flows through. Um, and so, for example, if you uh, have your microphone preamp adjusted on the low side so that you need to bring the channel fader up to get a signal level, a, a good level, you're not using as many bits as you should be using on the output of the preamp. And so that's where you're getting close to your noise floor. And then when you raise the level with the channel fader, you're bringing up those noisy bits to go with it. Uh, and that's how that's working. So you'll, you will hear, uh, you will hear engineers talking about using as many bits as you can throughout the mixer, uh, keeping your, your volume level up. Uh, but again, because, uh, depending on the nature of the signal, uh, there's speech, there's choral music, there's percussive music, um, there's a big difference in the crest factor uh, or the peak nature, peak to average nature of the signal. When you have percussive instruments, uh, which have very sharp, short transients, that short, sharp shock, right? Um, very sharp transients, your, the meter that you're looking at may not be fast enough to actually show you those peaks. And so you have to leave yourself some headroom. Uh, when you're when you're adjusting your your volume, so just keep all of that in mind. Go ahead, Bill. And by by the way, Marty, just a brilliant discussion of everything. It's so cool to have people here who can help us out and help us jump this curve. Uh, I just wanted to mention very quickly. Uh, you, we've heard terms like distortion and noise, and for me, it's really interesting when you were talking about David Gilmer, the guitarist at Pink Floyd's pedal board and everything. He had so many things in there because he wanted to seek out the right distortion. He put a lot of money and a lot of effort into making the distortion sound exactly the way he wanted it to. I hear people, though, occasionally saying that using the terms distortion and noise in the same frame, and they're really not, because noise is the stuff you don't want. We spend an equally large amount of time trying to get rid of noise, even if we're pursuing distortion. So as you're talking about this stuff, realize that sometimes the language really does matter, and these precise terms really have meanings that are important. Let's jump into the first question. Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach says, does every mic have its own inherent ideal gain setting for the optimum signal-to-noise ratio before we start adjusting for specific equipment and location factors? You want to add something to that, Jeff? Yeah, and I guess I just wanted to clarify, this has always been fascinating to me. I would think just on a, a, 
if nothing else, a theoretical sense that in their perfect chamber, there's got to be a number. Um, and then we should be just, uh, like I mentioned, adjusting for then our specifics. But it seems like that would be a great starting point. And I'm going to share my screen real quick. I mean, this is, for example, my, um, my Sennheiser MKH416. You know, this is what they give you for specs. Uh, I don't, see that number anywhere in there like you know start with this and work from from there so that's what i'm trying to get at is you know is there this theoretical starting point for each mic and then we adjust accordingly good morning yeah can you bring that back up jeff sure so let's take a look at that spec sheet and see if we can decipher it a little bit Great. Okay. So around the middle of the page, it says maximum sound pressure level, 130 dB SPL. And uh, near the top, we see sensitivity of 25 millivolts per pascal. Uh, it's missing a number there. There should be a number before the dB um, because that is a range uh, of error. But... Um, these two numbers are very important. Uh, the answer to your question is, it depends. It depends on the type of um, the type of audio that you're capturing, the volume level that you're capturing it in, and this relates to the maximum sound pressure level, uh, because <clears throat> it's not just outputting; it's also inputting. So if you're putting this in front of a kick drum. Uh, for a hard rock band, uh, that kick drum could, you know, produce very high sound pressure levels. And you want to, you know, you want to know or take a really good guess or measure somehow whether the sound pressure level is going to approach 130 dB. Not likely because 130 dB is really loud. <laughs> um, sensitivity of 25 millivolts is the voltage level that the microphone outputs given a reference sound pressure level going in. That sound pressure level, that reference is the same across all microphone tests and is specified by the standards organizations. And that is one Pascal. Um, so depending on the type of audio that you're bringing in, you would adjust your preamp so that your the output of the preamp is right around minus 18, minus 15 sometimes, uh, and <clears throat> that would be that would be the sweet spot for that microphone. Wherever that preamp adjustment is to get you to the level, it's more important to be at the level, uh, the right level for the mixer to operate on that, on that signal. Because the operating range of the microphone itself, that's all acoustic input. There's Go nothing Bill. you're doing on the mixer that is actually affecting what the microphone is doing. Good, Bill. Yeah, I know you're mostly interested in voiceover. And, you know, voices do not generally have that monstrously larger range. Yes, you can scream into a microphone or you can whisper into one. But it's not going to have the power of something like a kick drum mic really mm -hmm. close and things like that. Um, 
And mic level is so low. I don't know if you saw um, Marty's chart, but the microphone levels are down at 0 0.001, 0 0.003. They're thousandths of a volt. That basic signal coming out of it, regardless of the type of microphone, is going to be amplified so much that your control comes in the preamp stage and the amplification. Even something like a USB mic that has a little control, the microphone is putting out a reasonably fixed level, and then you're controlling gain at the structure beyond that. So I wouldn't worry too much about should I pick a mic for that? Pick it for sensitivity, pick it for being having low noise, low self-noise particularly. And then the rest of it, it'll work with anything after that. Good, Ronnie. Yeah, like Marty and, and uh, other people said, um, I, I would bring another thing into the, uh, into the factors as well. Um, if you're mixing a microphone coming from a band on a stage, you, of course, have to select the correct microphone. And yes, all microphones have a little thing called sweet spot, but uh, the most important is what's going into this. And eventually, that is what you are actually trying to uh, level out and m make a baseline on the mixer. Um, another thing is that... Um, uh, if you compare like uh, the Shure uh, SM58s and Beta 58s uh, A and uh, 87, they have also different polar uh, patterns, what they are picking up. In front of the microphones, it's kind of similar, but um, uh, adding monitors on the floor, uh, which uh, uh, is also a, a thing here, um, you have to select the right microphone for the right placement uh, compared to where the monitors are. So if you have a mon one single monitor uh, uh, at the end of the uh, floor, um, you, you have, uh, you have uh, probably to use SM58. If you have two monitors on each side, you, you choose another microphone. Did you want to add anything, Marty? Um, it's a really good point about polar patterns, and, and that's something we're going to cover uh, on another show. Uh, microphone polar patterns, where to use them, when to use them, why to use them. But uh, you do make a good point um, where your noise sources are, which would be your, your monitors, or an air vent, or, you know, a fan from a computer, uh, orienting your microphone properly. But um, just to clarify something, the sweet spot that I think um, uh, Jeff is asking about is is a is the 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 sweet spot of the transducer and the transformer in a dynamic microphone and the transducer and the preamp uh, pre preamp -pre converter in a condenser microphone. These are more mechanical or electromechanical functions, um, and is a matter of choosing the right microphone for the right application. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer, Vieira, Florida. What's the recommended signal path by priority for gain staging? Compression, then EQ, then other? Uh, Ronnie? Yeah, um, I'm not sure in what application this is uh, thought of. Uh, what, what I'm thinking is um, in a digital mixer, uh, these uh, signal flows are almost the same. For Alan Heath, for, uh, for instance, you have a trim, which is taking place first, then you have a uh, the preamp taking its uh, toll on the signal. Then you put it through a, 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 a high-pass filter, a gate, uh, and then you go into the parametric EQ, and then eventually you go into uh, compressors and and uh, uh, effects or delays, etc. So um, this 
varies a little bit between each uh, uh, brand, but uh, this is the, the the thing it's done, uh, the way it's done inside the mixer. So I'm not sure uh, what you're mean, meaning by this, Andy, if it's uh, a manual uh, flow or... Yeah, go ahead, Marty. Uh, actually, it doesn't really matter. Um, in the analog world, uh, we, uh, <clears throat> we can connect compressors, EQs, any other effects in any order we want to. In a digital mixer, sometimes you can actually change the order. Um, like on the X32, you can put the equalizer before or after the dynamics processor. It's a creative decision, um, gives you different sounds, different effects. And, but, um, uh, but in terms of gain staging, it doesn't really matter. You, you have to manage it either way. Next question. Mandy Van Cleve, Monroe, Ohio. I noticed the crew setting up microphones in front of the stage monitors at an outdoor music festival. Is this a common practice? The band was Royal Blood, a bass guitarist and drummer on vocals. They sounded like a larger band. Go ahead, Ronnie. That uh, signals to me that they have a good sound engineer, uh, but it's normal to have uh, microphones in front. And as we just uh, discussed, um, the different type of microphones has a different pickup polar pattern and can be used uh, uh, to optimize uh, um, noise uh, signal before feedback, uh, which is also cool. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Also, a lot of times the, the monitors at the back are for the instruments, the amplified instruments, and not carrying the vocals. The vocals might are best carried probably by an overhead array or something in front of the microphones to avoid feedback. So you don't have to do too much feedback processing on the open microphones uh, uh, to get a signal out to the audience. So, you know, the guitars may be coming through the stacks of amps at the back of the stage and the vocals may be coming out of the, uh, of the overheads. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. I learned gain leveling by using a tone generator. In digital audio, I'm not seeing much of that. Has it gone out of style? No. <laughs> you, you definitely want a tone generator. Uh, I don't have mine. Mine is just out of out of pocket. But uh, you definitely want to have uh, tone generators available. Um, you know to figure this out. So it's going to be the cleanest way for you to know what your levels are set to. Um, you know across the board. So we hear tone. On a lot of events, we'll hear tone for hours. You know, we 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 uh, get used to it, and you get very sensitive to it. Like um, I always know that Brian Maddox is generating tone because it's at eight hundred instead of a thousand, which is very sounds very odd to me. Uh, but he just he got tired of of one k, and he, it also lets him know that he's the one generating that tone and not somebody else. Um, so different engineers might use slightly different tones, uh, but you definitely want that tone to start as or as close to where it's so, the source is and go all the way through the system and what I tend to do is do it from the front to the back, you know, so, you know, lining everything up along the way to get that, that jagged edge that Marty was showing is to even that all out um, so that it's straight all the way across. Um, next question. Stefan Fischer, Würzburg, Germany, back again. If the overall volume turns out to be too low, for example, you're too far away from the source, which end of the chain would you turn up the volume? Or would you choose the highest quality piece in the chain to add a minor noise to the chain? Go ahead, Marty. Well, this is a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, uh, best practice is to is to work from the source. Uh, do what you can to get the source, the very first link in the chain, up to the correct level. Sometimes you can't do that because you know that is the human interface to the microphone. Um, either a person is not 
got a strong voice or they're too far from the microphone. And then you have to make this decision about which component that you do have control over should you turn up. Should it be the mic preamp? Should it be a gain stage? Should it be the uh, the channel fader? And uh, there are considerations. Like, yeah, you make a good point here. Which one it will be more likely to provide cleaner gain? Oftentimes it'll be the preamp, but not necessarily so. Um, that is a that is a, an engineer's decision that uh, that can be made. Most often, it's at the preamp, the earliest link in the chain that you can get to. Good, Ronnie. Yeah, and it's also um, uh, microphones that have uh, uh, different levels or uh, uh, padding. You can have the same microphone doing a children's choir, uh, which is very low, and you can, uh, two hours later, use it as an overhead for a heavy rock uh, drummer. You just have to uh, adjust the sensitivity of the microphone. Next question. John Snyder, Reno, Nevada. How much of gain staging is math and theory, and how much is just listening and practice? Good, Courtney. Well, it's both, but uh, one way you can tell that your gain staging is wrong is if you're hearing distortion in your output and you're turning your your uh, mixer level down and the distortion isn't uh, going away. That means your uh, distortion is happen happening fur further up the gain stage, and it may be happening in the preamp between the mic and the preamp as opposed between the mixer and the output. So, um, you know, you, you just have to use your brain in that, that effect to determine uh, where the gain staging is wrong and where the signal level is getting too hot and clipping, because uh, once it clips, you can't unclip it by turning it down later. Go ahead, Marty. Right. Or it could be, it could be happening before the mixer. So, um, um, or somewhere after the mixer doesn't have to be inside. So I ran into a situation where I was doing a, working with a webcasting company and they were taking, um, taking the output of my mixer into a little, you know, two or four input analog mixer that had a USB port on it. And that's how they were getting in, into the computer. Um, what they didn't realize though, was the XLR input on that mixer was a microphone, had a microphone preamp. And the mixer output is a plus four line level. And so they found themselves turning the preamp gain on that channel all the way down. And then even the channel fader had to be down another 10 to 15 to 20 dB in order to get it not to distort. Because there's a preamp in there that's applying a lot of gain. But that same channel also has a quarter inch input that is a line level input. And so if you have the right adapters, you take the output of the main mixer into this into the line level input of the smaller mixer, which has the USB port. I am trying to get them away from using that little mixer and, and getting a, a genuine audio interface. Do it right. Don't do it cheap. <laughs> if you're uh, in general, if you're turning your knobs to the lowest 10% or the highest 10% or let's say the lowest 25%, the highest 25%, something's wrong. Like as soon as I see someone moving their gain way up or way down, 
I immediately go, we need to look at gain staging. <laughs> like it, it's just like an immediate, like if we're turning things up too much or too, too far down, I immediately go into, um, you know, triage mode. There's something wrong with the system to have that actually be the case. Sometimes it's a very low mic, sometimes other things, but you have to be very careful of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, to, to your point though. And, and so I think that that's, um, something that's, that's super important. And a lot of us carry around a lot of adapters to handle this kind of thing. Next question. Right. Instruments and preamp. Instruments like uh, guitars and signal chains, uh, pedal boards, and keyboards. We often yeah. interface keyboards. Got to know what level up, what output level they're coming at. Next question. When the 70-volt speaker systems are being used, when are 70-volt speaker systems used, and are they still used today in the age of audio over IP? That comes from Douglas Campbell. Uh, 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 Carmichael. Uh, go ahead, Ron. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, we do some installs, and um, this uh, PowerSoft amp is actually both uh, normal uh, impedance, uh, 4 or 8 ohms. Uh, it's also a 70-volt uh, amplifier. But what's special about this amplifier is we can use Dante to send the signal out in the uh, area. Uh, so we send a high-quality digital signal to the amp, which then are placed uh, close by the speakers. And yes, 70-volt systems are still being used. Good morning. Yeah, they are. 70 volt systems, 100 volt systems. They're used to drive speakers that are uh, too far away to run a low impedance 8 ohm line because there'd be too much loss. Or where you have a chain of loudspeakers, like ceiling loudspeakers, you could have 20 ceiling loudspeakers on one amplifier output um, at, you know, a set, run on a 70 or 100 volt system. Next question. Next one comes from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach. In a signal change of DAW plugins, which is better? Use the compressor's makeup gain feature or leave it all to the final limiter? Thoughts, Marty? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Same rules apply. You have to, you have to um, manage your gain structure throughout all of your plugins. Uh, if, you, if you're overdriving your third plugin, your fourth plugin is going to, you know, have distortion or be too hot um, or will be compressing, you know, your fifth, your sixth, sixth plugin. And, you know, just to to limit it on the output, you're you're just lowering the level of the distortion. You're not getting rid of it. Next question. Robert Linkholm in Belmont Shores, California. Do most mixer pots from simple portable mixers to large broadcast or recording consoles work in a near efficient state when operated about two thirds to three quarters up position? Mm. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, usually this is called unity gain. You'll usually see a mark on most mixers that is on the panel, and that's called unity gain, which means that the input voltage equals the output voltage. So it's not applying gain, and it's not applying attenuation. So if you set it at unity gain, that's the optimal you know, way to shoot for uh, uh, an optical signal path. If everything is going through and not being altered, then you don't have anything that is boosting it up too high or attenuating it too low out of order. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, yeah, one of the signs of bad gain staging is if you move your basic fader on the channel a little bit and you get a huge swing, that's a sure sign that you've got gain stage mess up going on. Next question. 
Next question comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. When I saw Cheap Trick a few years ago, the front of house engineer preferred his Minus XL200 over the Festival's PM5D because he could hit the preamps a bit harder, quote unquote. Could Midas preamps have a specific sound when they are overdriven? I think all of them do. <laughs> That's, you know, and Midas is known for, uh, specifically known for, um, uh, the mixers and and you know there are some people that take advantage of how those preamps uh, interact with with sound and they like to flatten it out. Um, that's a that's definitely a sound that that some engineers uh, like. A lot of us are used to producing clean sound um, that is never uh, hitting that limiter, but or hitting or hitting the um, not really the limiter at this point, but the um, bu the buffer there. Uh, but uh, yeah, go ahead, Marty. Yeah, so now we're talking about analog circuits. Analog circuits, you know, are very different than digital circuits. Um, with analog devices, especially transformer um, interface device, transformer coupled devices, um, you can overdrive those and they will uh, sound warmer. They will go into a very um, uh, a unique kind of compression uh, or distortion that that we refer to as overdrive. And they won't clip necessarily unless you drive them way, way too hard. Uh, they will just uh, provide a, a, a little bit of warm distortion, which can add character and color to the sound. Uh, <clears throat> and that's why people... Um, prefer analog, especially analog preamps over digital ones. Marty, thank you so much for the hard work. Um, really, really great presentation. Thank you so much for, for putting the time into to making that more, uh, to covering that, that information. Um, really appreciate the work. Uh, and for all the panelists, thank you so much for your contribution and your discussion and uh, great answers, great discussion in the first hour, just great discussion in the second hour. Uh, thanks to the producers for, for all your questions. Uh, we got through as many as we could. Uh, they um, uh, really, really great set of questions for both the first and second hour. Thank you for that. We can't run this show without any of you uh, because, uh, because we uh, need those questions and we need the discussion. So, um, so it's very, very important. And we really appreciate your contribution. And again, thanks you to the incredible team on the back end uh, who is putting this together all the time. They're organizing these, figuring out what happens next, figuring out how to get this, you know, how to get these done, uh, who's scheduled for next week, and then a week after that, and the week after that, and the week after that. And also the team that's putting together the, the back end and constantly updating it and making it better and more resilient. We are going to be, by the way, if you're wondering how this all gets done, we're actually going to be talking about how it gets done uh, on Friday. So, um, so how office hours works and the whole back end and seeing what the dev team does is going to be. Uh, we're going a lot of the folks from the team are going to be jumping on on Friday and explaining how this all comes together. So it's going to be a great Friday to discuss that. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about how we get Cinegear and some of the pipelines and so on and so forth. So stay tuned for that as well. Uh, and so, but just an incredible work from the team, from the live team to the dev, te dev team to the planning teams. Just it's, it's a it's a definitely a small village on, a, on approaching a town uh, that is required to get the show done every single day. So we appreciate your contribution. And um, we have we covered ninety eight thousand miles, almost went one k today. Ninety eight thousand miles, one hundred fifty seven thousand kilometers. That's more than seven hundred and seventy six. Wait, look at this. Million bananas for scale. This is the official banana scale uh, that we use here. Um, uh, so 776 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into after hours.
I have so many of these bananas. I can, I can have them calibrated. Yeah, soon, soon with with uh, Apple's VR, we're gonna have them floating. We can have them floating around. So you're beyond a bunch. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if you could just measure things with this. Let's just put it up against something like how big is it? Uh, it's about a, it's about a banana and a half. I mean, it's you know kind of. Do you have to do geometry like the, for the curve? It's like yellow before brown. Because bananas really started in Reddit. I don't know if I have to start paying for the use of the scale. I wonder if we have to pay by banana. I mean, it's going to get really expensive. So I'm going to subscription banana. And we're going to now get, like, charged for it. Like, there's going to be, like, a Reddit a Reddit invoice. Per oh, no. banana. Oh, no. All right. How far is craft services from here? Yeah, exactly. 